0: Tonight, we're going to be in the second epistle of John. We finally finished 1 John last week. And tonight, uh, I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, we're going to make it through the first six verses. Um, and, and, uh, we, uh, and the reason is we got a little extra because we got a little bit of introductory material on 2 John. I want to talk about just, just a little bit because there's a lot of the same things that applied on our fir- 1 John would apply here as well. But uh, John's second epistle can be almost called a mini version of first John. Uh, it, all the same major themes appear in second John that one reads in first John, and, and, and also second John is the second shortest letter, the second shortest book in the New Testament. Only one shorter is actually Third John. And uh, 2 John only has 245 words in the original Greek. I don't know how many it has in the English translation, but in the original Greek, it only has 245 words. Now, unlike 1 John, if you remember when we started 1 John, one of the things that was different about it than a lot of epistles is that it didn't start with the normal introduction where it says, you know, like Paul would say, Paul to the church in Galatia, and he'd give this greeting. Well, 1 John didn't have that, but 2 John, is written according to the form of a standard uh, Greco-Roman letter. Second John indicates both a and a dressee, although both are very, very, actually rather vague. Uh, the letter, as we will see in a moment, is from the elder, and it's written to the chosen lady and her children. So now, now the elder was evidently enough to inif- identify the author to the original readers And the the tone of the letter suggests authority in keeping with spiritual leadership. It's it's written by a church leader, (coughs) excuse me, to a congregation known to him. And when we talk about the authorship of it, we're not going to go into a lot of detail here because it's similar to 1 John. But because we have very great confidence uh, regarding the authorship of the Gospel of John, and then when you compare the contents of 1 John with the Gospel of John, You begin to realize that those are very closely related. So we rely on the knowledge that we know the gospel of John was written by by John. That's how help we determine that that 1 John is written by the same author, which would be John. Then because, for example, 2 John is like a mini version of 1 John, you begin to see, okay, well, this is the same writer as 1 John. And then when you look at 3 John, you see, it's addressed by the same person, the elder. So you begin to see how they're all connected in that way. And so we have great confidence that this was written by the apostle John. Um, and so uh, John the elder, well, and I'll probably go back and forth calling him John or the elder uh, tonight in, in, in the study. But he writes, why does he write 2 John? Especially if it's um, the same themes? Um, and it could be that he needed to address again later uh, the same issues. But, but he writes for a surface reason. He writes for an underlying reason. And then I, I believe he also wrote for a literary reason. The surface reason for writing is to warn his readers about the deceivers who may hope to receive their hospitality. Uh, you remember 1 John? He was the, one of the major themes was he was warning against false teachers. And in 2 John... He's doing the same thing, but he's specifically telling them, uh, uh, warning them about receiving them and giving their, them, their hospitality. And he strongly prohibits any support of false, of the false teachers requiring that they withhold their hospitality from them, which by the way, we'll get into hospitality a later date. This is a big deal for them to deny hospitality because in their culture, in that part of the world, hospitality is a huge, huge deal. Um, So that's the surface reason. The underlying reason for writing is that the elder is very much concerned with, for truth and love. Indeed, we know that the reality is, and this is what he teaches in 1st and 2nd John, is that truth and love are sort of the twin rails on which Christianity runs. You think of Christianity as a, as a train running down the track? The two, the two tracks are truth and love. They run together. They're the twin rails. And they bring authenticity and balance to our Christian confession and our conduct. And, and these two twin themes undergird the letter and are, are the reason that he prohibits showing hospitality to false teachers. Because the false teachers, first of all, it's, if it's a false teacher, then they're assaulting the truth side of the, of the track. But the second thing is to impede false teaching, uh, is also a demonstration of love because you're sparing people from being exposed to false teaching, which leads to them, uh, to confusion in their life and also potentially even falling away from Christ. So that's the, the surface and the underlying reason. Now the literary reason for writing, and this is arguable and this is, I'm not going to give you anything that's, that's uh, definite. I'm not going to say this is absolutely what it is, but this is some, this is, there's a theory and an idea that's picked up steam over the years and, uh, but, but the literary reason for writing, arguably, is that 2 John was actually intended to accompany 1 John as a cover letter. And the evidence for this, the reason this people think this, it comes from a man named Irenaeus, who was an early church father, early church leader. And at one point in time, in one of his writings, he quotes 2 John verses 7 and 8. But he he seems in his writing, he seems to regard that as part of 1 John. And so according to one commentator, it, it seems that the form in which Irenaeus knew 1 and 2 John did not distinguish between the two epistles. And he suggests that the reason for this is that 2 John was originally the cover letter for 1 John and 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 that the combined form was what iranius had was the two of them together now to think about it that could explain why first john doesn't have any formal greeting because the, that duty was carried out by its cover letter um, furthermore first john existed on its own you could you could say well why would there why would there be it why would first john have have any manuscripts where it exists by its own because John would have used it in his own church where it didn't need a cover letter. So it, it, if it was being sent somewhere, there's a possibility. And so now I'll admit, it's obvious the evidence coming from Arrhenius is slight. There's not a ton of evidence, but it is significant in the absence of any other historical evidence regarding the composition of Second John. So I'll to say that as such, the, the, the cover letter theory is plausible. It is very possible. And there is some evidence that that's the case now if that is accepted actually whether that's accepted or not doesn't change that but um uh the but the opponents that he refers to whom the elder warns are actually the same opponents in both letters we do know that but it does make sense then again if it's a cover letter that he's introducing the themes then expounding on it in in his main letter but but Regardless of whether it is a cover letter or not, we know it's the same opponents because there, there's very strong internal evidence for that conclusion as well. Uh, the reason we say that is in verse seven, these false teachers are just, are are described as deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And does that sound familiar? That's right out of First John. But uh, he's also that person is also described as antichrist also right out of 1 John that's exactly how uh, John's opponents were described in 1 John chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 and chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 so for such a short letter just a few verses one chapter long John uh, 2 John packs a lot in there and so the twin themes of love and truth dominate its theological context Uh, content and while instructions regarding false teachers occupy most of the second half of the letter. So let's get into the verse by verse and hopefully we'll make it through uh, the six verses. But I wanted to give you that little bit of background information before we started. Second John verse one, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. So in this informal letter, letter, John, uh, he he didn't stand on his authority as an apostle, but he spoke of himself as an elder, as someone who watched over the believers with loving concern for their spiritual well-being. Now, he could have stood on his authority. I mean, he, he had been one of Jesus's 12 disciples, one of the original 12. And in fact, he probably at this time was, was more, more than likely was the only remaining li- living member of, <clears throat> of the 12 disciples. Um, and, and we also know that he's, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters in the New Testament, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. So he had a lot of authority from which he could speak. But instead of relying on his authority as apostle, he actually spoke of himself as an elder, which is a much warmer greeting, a much more personal reading, personable reading uh, greeting, excuse me, um, and and obviously now, <clears throat> also I mean you can't discount the fact that it also may have reflected John's age, because <clears throat> he he must have been a, a, an old man when he wrote this uh, this epistle. This was written somewhere in the nineties, probably, uh, uh, and and so he he was probably an old man. But obviously, whatever whatever the case, the readers recognized who the author was just from the title, the Elder. They knew who he was. And he writes to the chosen lady and her children. Now, this is where we're going to start digging in just a little bit because we have to ask ourselves the question, who is this chosen lady? Or some versions that will say the elect lady. Same, same idea, same Greek word. Uh, and there are two major options that you can choose from. I'm going to give you both of them. And I'm going to tell you which one I lean toward, which one I believe. And you can make your own choice because this is not critical for uh, understanding the gospel, but it's just a, it's just something that's not perfectly clear. The first option is that this lady is an unidentified individual who apparently has children, uh, whether literal or figurative, we don't know, but, but those children are also known to the elder. And then the second option is that the lady is a local congregation and her children are the believers who gather, in that, that church, gather under her wings, as it were. Now, this matter, um, is a, it, it was actually even controversial back in the early church with, <clears throat> with some viewing the chosen lady as a church and others viewing, it a, 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 viewing her as a particular individual. But it's difficult for us to know because, you know, like for us, for example, see, there's some, some uh, commentators that think that maybe uh, the the word the Greek word I believe it's electe uh, they that they believe that was the name of a Babylonian woman that they that was used to represent the elect and others say that when he uses the word kyrios that it's actually a transliteration and it could be a, a different name um, and it could be a proper name but the problem is there's no there's no uh, in the Greek grammar there's nothing that would indicate it's a proper name. But we can't be completely sure. And part of that is like here in English, what what do you do? When you write a proper name, what do you do when you write it out? You capitalize the first letter, right? Well, the problem is in ancient Greek, all words are written in capital letters. They didn't have small letters. They just all had the same. Therefore, you can't tell from the printed page if chosen lady refers to a specific woman or a specific name or 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 not. Now, in favor of an actual individual is the fact that the elder addresses her as 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 though a person no less than six times. And, and and if if then the chosen lady is not an individual, he certainly then is very diligent in working the metaphor thoroughly throughout the letter. Also in favor of this reading is the fact that nowhere nowhere else in apostolic literature is a congregation personified let alone personified as a specific gender. Now, in favor of the lady being a congregation is that while personified, there are absolutely no specific details about this person in the letter offered as to her identity. She remains very very vague, uh, personal, but nondescript. And moreover, the elder sends greetings from the children of your chosen sister, which also sounds like another congregation so tradition and the most recent scholarship tends to favor congregation which is well supported by the text i think i think it's supported because not only does the tone of the letter imply a wider audience because some of the things that he's saying seems to be apply more widely to a group of people than it does to just one one woman uh, but also the letter itself from time to time, lapses into the plural at many different points. Uh, additionally, I think, I think also leaning to help you lean that way is that the New Testament, while there are no apostolic writings referring to a church personified, there are many times where you see that the New Testament thinks of the church with feminine metaphors. For example, the church is known as what? The Bride of Christ. And, and, and then also when you talk about the elect... The Bible, the New Testament calls Christians the chosen or the elect. So for these reasons, I believe that we should view 2 John as a personal note written by John to a particular congregation, not to a specific person. uh, And the congregation is affectionately described as her children. Now, I will say this. Also, think about this. um, They were not, you know, they were not living in the safest of times and you didn't know how I mean, we know you read the book of Acts and you see how at times Paul was punished. He was thrown in prison. He was beaten, all these different things. So a veiled allusion like this to a church uh, may have been even a device for shielding the identity of the community from any adverse action that public officials which oppose Christianity might impose. Because if the letter fell into unfriendly hands, it would just seem to be nothing more than a private message to a friend. So there's good reason for that. So in verse four, the the corporate love of all believers, uh, not not verse four, verse one, Uh, we haven't got there yet. (laughs) Verse one, the corporate love of all believers for one another comes through in John's word. He says, whom I love in the truth and not I only, but also all who know the truth. So. We're already beginning to see a a connection between love and truth here. Believers love one another, not because of common attraction or not because we're totally uh, compatible, but believers love one another because of the common truth they believe and share. That's what brings us to love one another. And we're also going to see... Um, John, uh, in a few moments, is going to apply this circular reasoning to, that, that we'll see how love and obedience and love and truth are very, very closely related. Um, and, and when he uses the phrase, he said, "This the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. One of the things that's interesting there is that sort of personifies the truth. Because truth, it, it, you know, if, as a concept, is not going to live in us. And it's not going to be with us forever so it's personified so you begin to see that truth here is more than just a concept out there of knowledge that we can have and while there is an array of meanings for truth in all of john's writings here here it most signif- most likely signifies what is ultimately real and in the end this means god himself as he has been revealed in jesus god gave the truth to people in jesus christ who is the full expression and embodiment of truth. Thus, because Jesus dwells in us, then truth dwells in believers because Christ dwells in them as the spirit of truth. Truth, therefore, is included. um, Excuse me, truth, therefore, included, but means more than just simple concepts or precepts or orthodox teachings. So it's more than just a body of truth. It's more than that. It's that Jesus is the truth. And that what he said, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And so truth centers around Jesus Christ. The truth is the reality of Jesus Christ, as opposed, in John's letter, as opposed to the lies of the false teachers. And you know, a, a, a people can choose to deny the truth, which we see that a lot in today's culture. People are living in, in, In denial of what truth is they may leave the fellowship but that does not change the truth truth is truth is truth it doesn't change and because Christ is eternal truth is also eternal and it's not subject to change because and because Christ lives in believers he and his truth will be with them forever so to know the truth is to have a relationship with the true God So already, as I said, from from the very first verse of 2 John, we see the intrinsic relatedness of truth and love. So we're going to talk about those two. That's what we're going to deal with tonight, truth and love. For the elder, for John, truth is the feature that defines the community. Truth is the feature that defines community. In other words, let me put it another way. It serves as a boundary marker in that those who know the truth are in, while those who do not are out. It draws a line. This is, frankly, the inevitable consequence of what truth is. And this is why so many people in the world today hate the concept of truth, because it does draw clear lines. And people want to say, oh, you can't draw a line, because if you draw a line, somebody's excluded. Well, that's that's the nature of truth. That, that there is truth, and then there is falsehood, and there's nothing in between. And there is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is just truth. And if you say, well, this is my truth, well, if it falls under the category of actual truth, then it is truth. But it but even if it, but if it doesn't, you can say this is my truth all you want, but it's still false. Because there, there, there's either true or, there, or there's false. There's nothing in between. And so If the truth is true relational knowledge of God through the revelation of Jesus, then then it must be such a boundary marker. In other words, uh, to say that truth, and Jesus is the truth, and knowledge of God is the truth, it's a feature that defines the community. What that means is, if I know Jesus, I'm in the family of God. If I don't, I'm not in that community. Doesn't matter if I attend church, right? It's about knowing Jesus. Because, you know, as like the old saying goes, you've probably heard it a a dozen times or more, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you a car. Being in a building doesn't make you a follower of Christ. That's what a Christian is. And so uh, knowing God in Christ is is what makes one a member of God's family. And that's what sets believers apart from the world. That's what makes us different. Um, And it's not in the sense of exclusion where we're like exclusive and we're like, oh, we're in. You bunch of losers, you're out. That's not what it means. It's just saying that's where the line is. That's the the line of truth. Um, Rudyard Kipling wrote a, a poem called We and They. Anybody ever heard of that poem? Um, he, he writes this in the first stanza. He writes, father and mother and me, sister and auntie say, all the people like us are we and everyone else is they. And it's, a, it's actually a very insightful poem, has five stanzas in, in all, but explores the we and the they group dynamics of life. And here in the first stanza, the focus is on the family. The family While it's in a larger, wider society, it 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 calls uh, they while uh, you know while us in the family are we. So it's two different groups. The point is not about exclusion of others, but the stanza simply acknowledges the fact that family is defined uh, by its belonging to this particular cultural demographic. For the elder, for John, truth is the factor that makes believers we while others are they. Truth functions as the as the bond of believers fellowship. That's what what binds us together in love. But also one of the other things truth does, and this is why John deals with it. It also keeps out false teachers. If I know truth, I'm not susceptible, susceptible to false teaching. Uh, you know, in contrast to so many in our culture that dogmatically deny truth or absurdly define it according to personal preference. And they say, well, if you, if you feel this way, that's truth. No, no, because our feelings lie to us all the time. Has anybody ever felt something? You had a feeling you were afraid of something and you found out later there was nothing to be afraid of. Your feelings are lying to you, weren't they? And so it has nothing to do with that. And and I always, I'd always kind of chuckle when I hear somebody say, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Because when they say that, they are stating an absolute truth. If I say there's no absolute truth, I always if, if somebody says that, I always want to say, okay, is that absolutely true? And, and, it's, it, and if there is no absolute truth, you can't make that statement. It makes, it makes no sense. It's completely indefensible. So, but, but John declared here the existence of, of an absolute and that absolute is Jesus. God's the ultimate standard by which all else can be judged. God is true. His words and his ways are true and whatever or whoever contradicts or opposes him is false, deceptive and and dangerous. And and we need to understand this that truth is is so important to our to to Christianity that the twin rails have to both be there. We churches tend to get out of balance one way or the other uh it's it's important for a church to strive to 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 live with both of these but what happens is you have some churches that emphasize truth and they leave out the love and you you don't get very far with that because then you become very judgmental because you start telling people you're a bunch of rotten sinners well it's true but there's no love there to explain them the gospel or the other people go the other, other direction And they want to say, oh, we just have to love everybody. We should love people. And so they say, let's love, love, love. But then they never tell them the truth, which means they don't really love them. So uh, we need to understand the world in which we live and the the attack that there is on even just simply the concept of truth um, and that truth can be known, that truth can be absolute, And we need to engage that in the difficult battle uh, and the critical battle for for truth. Uh, To to paraphrase a familiar saying, and this is not the saying, but this is my paraphrase, all that is required for deception to triumph is for people of the truth to do nothing. John wrote his second letter to warn believers against false believers and little has changed in 2000 years false believers, excuse me, false teachers still exist and they still attempt to confuse and deceive the people of God. And this letter uh, should serve as a wake up call to believers to be alert, to be careful, and to make sure we are solidly grounded in the word. Truth is our defense against false teaching. When you know the truth, the Holy Spirit can bring it to your mind and, and, and even if something, because false teachers are, can be very deceptive and make it sound very appealing. But when you know the truth, the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind and the red flags start going up. And when those red, flag, red flags start going up, that's when you need to walk away from it and be like the Bereans and go get the scripture and examine it to see if what they said is so. So uh, don't be afraid to speak the truth in love. Uh, but make sure you do both. Make sure you don't just speak the truth. Make sure you don't just love, but you speak the truth in love. Uh, And and listen, you need to understand when you do that, some people will reject the truth. And more painfully for you personally, some people will reject you. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we avoid it. Because we don't avoid it, because when the truth is spoken and received, we know that the truth will set you free. That's how some people will find freedom. If we don't speak the truth, they'll never find the freedom. Look at verse 3. I like this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with, with us in truth and love. Now, the words grace and peace were standard greetings in many, many letters of the day. And John adds mercy to the list here. And and, and grace, let's talk about these things. Grace is God doing for us what we do not deserve. That's unmerited favor. That's divine kindness. And you know, the interesting thing is the only other time John wrote of grace was in John chapter one, verses 16 and 17. He wrote, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the, the Greek text of, of John 1.16, when he says one bless, blessing after another, it actually indicates that God gives grace to believers as a continual supply. In other words, just as one measure of grace is used up, another one replaces it. That is a never-ending situation. The same is true for mercy and peace. Then the, the mercy, sometimes we use mercy and grace interchangeably, but they're they're related, but they're not the same. Remember, grace is God doing for us what we do not deserve. That's Jesus dying on the cross when I deserve to die on the cross. Mercy is God not doing to us what we do deserve. So I deserve judgment when God does not give me judgment. That is his mercy. That's his compassion, his pity, his tenderness. And and God reveals his mercy by forgiving and freeing people from sin. And that results in peace between them and God. Now, peace is personal wholeness. It's well-being in all all aspects of life. It really, the word refers to being put at one. Something that was divided is put back together. So peace refers to the peace that Christ made between sinners and God through his death on the cross. We know scripture says that Christ died for us while we were still enemies of God. And so what he did was he put together the enemy of God with God and, and former he transformed former enemies into friends and family. So our, our former hostility toward our maker has been replaced with loving adoration and worship, and we rest secure in our peace in him. And grace, mercy, and peace, as John said, will keep on coming like a spirit, Spring-fed well that just never runs dry. Grace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ can never be exhausted, uh, and, and God always makes it available to believers. Now, uh, these three Christian virtues, grace, peace, and uh, grace, mercy, and peace, uh, they all have a very specific and distinct source, as do love and truth grace, mercy, peace, truth, and love, all, according to John, flow into our lives from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now, you can compare that to 1 John 1.3, because there again, he talks about about what we receive. We have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus the Son. Uh, and, and the repetition there of the preposition from, where he said from God, the father and from Jesus Christ, it makes it very clear that he's talking about two different persons. There's no other way grammatically that you can read that verse. You can, you, that you can translate that verse other than for it to say from God, the father, it was one person from Jesus Christ is a second person. And then he adds for good measure, the son of the father. So, you know, we were talking before service, you know, there's, there's some uh, that, that teach and they, they say that there is no Trinity and it's this oneness doctrine. And, and uh, uh, verses like this absolutely prove that, that they are wrong because you cannot, you cannot say these are the same person. You cannot say Jesus is the father and Jesus is the son, the son of the father. That'd be saying Jesus is the father and he is his own son as well. You, you just can't. It just doesn't work. It, you cannot make it mean that. Uh, the, the, so that the fact that he puts that from in front of both of them is in the Greek absolutely separates the two. And what it does is it conveys the idea of equality of position while, mis, while maintaining distinction in person. So the father and son are equally and fully God. Yet there is a true and genuine distinction in the in the person in person. Uh, and, and to make this clear, God is identified as Father twice in that same verse. In, in terms of the inner relationship within the Godhead, Jesus Christ is God, but He's also God the Father's Son. So we see the, the Trinity in this verse, or at least two members of the Trinity in this verse. And Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the Christ. And we know from Scripture, and he's, as he said, he is, he is uh, sent by the Father into this world for the purpose of redeeming sinful humanity. Um, and the, now, that title of God the Father also points to a unique relationship Christians have with God. Because he's a father to us. and we, And we are his children. However, the way he put it here together by by referring to Jesus Christ as the Father's Son, John points to a unique relationship between God and Jesus. While while all believers can call God their Father, only Jesus is the unique Son of God who is one with God Himself. So, these words truth and love form a bridge into the remainder of the letter. Truth and love... In Christianity, always, always, always go hand in hand. Let, let's look at verse 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6, and we're going to look at each of these verses separately. It says this: It has been give, excuse me, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So now, now verse four there, uh, it's a little bit difficult. It's a very kind of a unusual uh, sentence in the Greek, but it's, it, it, it has been translated a couple of different ways, which leads to different views uh, as to its meaning. So the NIV, as I just read it, Uh, translates the verse to say that that John experienced great joy in finding that some of the chosen lady's children, referring to the believers, were walking in the truth. Now, so it seems as though John has been brought news of the church, including the sad information that, that it has suffered a division because of the work of false teachers, but John rejoiced that some of the believers were remaining true to the gospel. Now, another view springs from an alternative translation there's another translation that says how happy I was to meet some of your children and to find them living in the truth so in that view you could say that and you could say that see that and you could say okay well that means that John had had only met some of the believers in the church and he was glad that those that he had met were remaining in the truth and now if this were the case John was probably speaking about those that he met at some place other than the local church itself and identifying that only some of the children he wasn't necessarily excluding the others he was just speaking of those that he had met so it can go either way either way in both cases the apostle rejoiced in the believers who had not allowed false teachers to lead them away from the truth he was happy he was rejoicing over that now He says in there a phrase, he talks about walking in the truth. We need to talk a little bit about that because walking in the truth refers to the the Christians acting out the truth that they profess, living it out on an everyday basis. Vance Havner, I don't know if anybody ever heard of Vance Havner, but he was a a wonderful North Carolina uh, evangelist and preacher, and he was full of, he was just a reservoir of wit and wisdom. But he often said this, this is one of his sayings. He said, what we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. I want to say, wow, and ouch, sometimes at the same time. Because he's saying, listen, you can say whatever you want to say you believe. But what you, what you actually live out is what you really do believe. So the idea is, walking in the truth, is that truth is not simply knowledge to be understood but it must be walked it must be lived the truth is to be pursued as a way of life not just as information to fill your mind with the the commandment to live in the truth came from the father through the son to the disciples who passed it on to the believers as john had explained in another letter in first john actually 323 and this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So, John, when we, when we read verse, verse four, he said, just as the father commanded us. That tells us that John knew well the source of his spiritual authority and, and his life's authority for that matter. There are basically four options when it comes to, this, to the source of the authority to which we will submit. We will either submit to reason which is what we think, or to tradition, which is what we've always done, or we'll submit to experience, which is what we feel, or we'll submit to revelation, which is what God says. We're going, to re- we're going to submit to one of those four areas. And for John, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, his son, and in his word. And for him and for us too, the matter is settled. We don't debate him we don't debate His Word, we proclaim them both. So, walking in the truth. To walk in the truth, therefore, involves believing in Jesus Christ as God's Son, that's faith side of it, and loving others, that's the action side of it. So, I live my faith out, if I believe in Jesus, I live it out by loving other people. Uh, I'm, I'm saved by faith, but the evidence of that salvation is I'm going to live it out, and I'm going to love people. Walk, walking in the truth means living in freedom. John 8, 32. then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Living in it means living in close proximity to Jesus, who is the truth. Jesus answered, "I am the way, that, and the truth, and the life." Living uh, in freedom, it, it, or excuse me, walking in the truth means living under. The, the control and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, John sixteen thirteen. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. It means living according to the principles and precepts of Scripture, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And it means rejecting a sinful life, lifestyle, 1 John 1, 6. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So, you know, when we read these things, we can use these kind of ideas, these kind of teachings to measure our own lives using this criteria. And so the question is, understanding these things, am I living, am I, am, I, am I a living advertisement for what it means to walk in the truth? Am I living it out? Now, I want to add something to this, something I found very interesting. I think it'll help us understand the concept of a little of a few things, but walking. Uh, Again, in Jewish thought, walking was referring to your everyday life, that sort of thing. But walking, uh, the way it's used, it conveys conduct under God's oversight. It's, It's not simply wandering around aimlessly, but it is God conscious living, being aware of God's presence, being aware that he is watching. I want to help you understand this. I'm going to use an illustration. We'll actually come back to it a few times for the last few minutes. Imagine a young boy playing in the front yard of a family home. There's a picket fence that prevents the child from running out onto a busy street. And he's instructed to stay in the yard, straying no further. And imagine that child's father sitting on the front porch. Maybe he's reading a newspaper, but he's also, while he's doing that, keeping an eye on his playful son And as the son plays in the yard, he is conscious that that his play is under the watchful eye of his father. He is free to have fun and to play as uh, uh, play any way he wants to. So long as he does not climb over the fence and run onto the street. Here's the thing. Being conscious of his father's watchful eye helps him do the right thing and to remain safe. And as we live our lives, it's, an, it's enormously helpful to remember that we live under God's watchful eye, to cultivate the sense of his presence with us all the time, to cultivate this idea that we are living under his watchful eye. There, there is no part of life that God does not see. You know, when, when I go to him and confess something, he never goes, huh, what? I didn't know that. No, he, he saw it. He already knew that. That's why he wants me to come and confess it, to make it right with him. And and knowing that there's no part of life that God does not see, that will help us resist the temptation to run out into the street where we might get hit by a passing car, like the child in the yard. Knowing that we walk before the Lord is both pleasing to him and it's a safeguard for us. Now that illustration can also help us to see, this is a little bit different note, it helps us to see the similarities and the differences between living under the law of Moses and living under the new covenant law of love. For the former, for the law of Moses, the front yard of the family home is, in, home is enclosed by a picket fence. And the young boy plays in the yard freely, but the fence provides a layer of safety as it prevents the boy from running out onto this busy street. And in this scenario, the father is sitting on the porch, keeping a watchful eye on his son, but the son's safety is measured by whether or not he stays within the parameters of the fence if he begins to climb over the fence he will be in violation of this loving restriction that is in place for his own well-being that's a picture of the law the fence all right now on the other hand under the new covenant without the requirements of the law of moses here's the thing and it's going to sound weird to you but stay with me there is no picket fence The boy plays in the yard freely, just as before, but he is trusted to do the right thing in the absence of the fence. The father is still sitting on the porch, still keeping a watchful eye, but now the son's safety is not measured by whether or not he climbs over the fence because there is no fence. Nonetheless, here's the key. The instructions are more or less the same He is to stay in the yard. He may not run into the street. And in this way, the New Testament can show strong parallels between the old and new covenants without putting Christians under the old covenant, without putting Christians under the law. In Christ, the fence has been removed. You can see that in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. That's where it talks about that he has broken down every wall, every barrier. And now, what that means is that the fence is down. What that means is not that the children can run out of the yard, but what it means is that other children in the neighborhood can now come in. They can now come in and play in the yard. The Gentiles are now welcome alongside the descendants of Abraham. But even without the law, we're still required to stay within the parameters of the yard. We're still to live in accordance with God's truth and instruction characterized by love for him and for our neighbor. This is why uh, we understand that the law, we're not under the law anymore. However, the principles that the law we're communicating are still applicable in our lives. So if the law was a moral law, we still live under those moral principles The the to, to honor God. We don't leave the yard, even though there's no fence there, even though we're not under the law. And indeed, in Christ, the truth is we have the Spirit of God living in us. And this is a huge, huge, major difference between the Old and the New Covenants. The Spirit teaches and enables us to play within the yard. While a fence is an external boundary marker, that's what the law was. The Spirit is internal. He lives in us, teaching us directing us, empowering us. It's, it's as though that the young boy playing in the yard has maybe grown up a little bit. Perhaps now he's a teenager. And, and he, does not, he doesn't need a fence to keep him safe. He knows the dangers of the street and is able to avoid them without external restrictions. That, that really is, in effect, Paul's argument in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25. Listen to what Paul said, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. The law was a guardian. You know another way to say it? The law was a babysitter until Christ came. And now we no longer need a babysitter. However, just because the babysitter is now gone, it does not mean that believers can just do whatever we want. On the contrary, what it means is, now I can't blame it on the law or the outer, uh, the exterior, what it means is that now it is our responsibility to discern what what it means to live God's way in the world. It's what God's doing inside of me. It's about a change in my heart, not just controlling my actions. We're to walk in the truth as we learn it from God himself. We walk in the truth by consciously living in accordance with God's instruction, knowing that we do so before his watchful eye. The truth sets parameters by which we may live. It teaches us what is good. It warns us of the dangers that must be avoided. The truth instructs us to live in a way that is consistent with God's nature and character. And it teaches us to reject false truths about him and identify the idolatries of the world. All right, let's look at verse five. And uh, we're going to talk about love. I'm going to try to hurry and get this done tonight. Verse five. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Now, what what John was urging was not a new commandment uh, as though he had received some new revelation, because that was actually what the false teachers were claiming. They were saying, we have this new revelation. We have this new knowledge. And John is saying, no, no, I'm not giving you anything new. I want to take you back to to the old commandment. The thing that you heard from the very beginning, the thing that you heard me teach from the day you first believed. And, and what, he, what he asked was a commandment that the believers had had from the beginning. I also like the way that he says at the end of it, he says, I ask that we love one another. He includes himself in the whole thing, which I always love that. The, the, the Christians had been taught this, uh, this commandment from the, from the time that they first heard the gospel preached. And that commandment is this. Let us love one another. The statement that that Christians should love one another is a recurrent theme in the New Testament. Love love for one's neighbor is not a new command. It's an old command. In fact, it first appears in the third book of Moses. It appears in Leviticus. It's the first time you see the command. Uh, But knowing the command is there is not enough. Those who claim to love God and believe in his son have to put their faith into practice. And how do they do that? They put their faith into practice by loving. And then now, rather than stopping simply uh, saying love one another, next, John uh, gives further definition to the love command. He writes this in verse six. And this is love. He says, I ask that we love one another. Then in verse six, and this is love. So he's going to define, he's going to make it clear that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So lest anyone wonder what John meant by the word love, he explains it very clearly. Love does not, by his definition, does not focus on emotions or feelings. Instead, love means doing what God has commanded. Now that doesn't tend to register with us as love, but I'm gonna make a statement and I'm gonna explain it. Love is expressed in obedience, And obedience fulfills the command to love. The the, the test of love is obedience to God's commands. And the test of obedience is whether one walks in love. It's circular. It's all working together. And the argument is intentionally circular. Believers are to love one another. Love is described as walking according to God's command. And God's command is that we love one another. You see what he's saying here? He's saying truth and and love are inseparable because you can't walk in truth and obey his commands without obeying the command to love one another. It's clear that walking in the truth will lead to walking in love because God's command is that we love one another. If walking in the truth sets helpful parameters for living before God, Then walking in love is what characterizes that type of living. Let's go back to our illustration. It's one thing to stay off the street while playing in the front yard. But what if the boy has a a mean streak in him and he and he plays and he as he plays with his little sister and he's mean to his sister? He might be safe from the oncoming, oncoming traffic but he's still not doing the right thing. The the watchful father will see him, will talk to him, will encourage him to be kind to his sister because that's how we treat other members of the family. The son knows his father loves him, but he also knows that his father loves his sister. Therefore, to be a good son and brother, he needs to love. As as the neighbors see the the children playing in the yard, they the, the 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 way they treat each other will become known to the neighborhood. It's one thing for children to remain safe, staying within the parameters of the yard, but but it's another thing to play well together. And every parent here knows exactly that that's the truth, right? Uh, if children if the children constantly constantly bicker and fight with each other, how does that reflect on the household? The family will become known as good rule keepers but not very nice. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of churches are in today's culture. They'll be known that way. They don't even treat their own family members well. How will they treat others? Yet yet more importantly, what does the behavior of the children say about the nature of the father? Sure, kids will be kids, and even with the most gracious, loving parents, kids can, frankly, sometimes they can still be punks, right? You know, that's just the way it is. But constantly harsh and unloving relationships between siblings is a whole different thing. Perhaps love is not being modeled there. You know, maybe they have not received parental love themselves. Perhaps their parents are mean-spirited too. Why are they like this? On the other hand, children who play together with love and respect and fidelity will make their households stand out like lights in the neighborhood. The, the unmistakable character of love reflects well on the children's father. and it says a lot about the nature of the family. It, it, it will be, it'll be one of those families that other kids just love to hang around, especially those kids who lack loves, lack love in their own homes. The loving family will be all the more impressive though, when they extend their love to other kids, where playing in the yard is, is a joy for all and no one is rejected see this is the picture of walking in love what we have to understand is that without walking in love as christians without walking in love we risk becoming pharisees that's the truth pharisees were constantly concerned about righteousness but they also frequently failed in love. Without walking in love, we'll be seen as bickering siblings, we'll be reflecting poorly on our Father in heaven. But by contrast, Jesus lived in perfect righteousness, right? But He did not fail to show compassion to those around Him. He, Jesus, held truth and love together in perfect harmony, I love what even says in the first chapter of John, where it talks about that that uh, he that he w- he came in truth and grace. It's the same idea: truth and love, the two of them together. And as God's children, our goal and and we'll fail. I mean, you know, we'll fail from time to time, but our goal, with the help of the Holy Spirit, it, 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 as God's children, is to strive for that same harmony, that we'll walk in truth, live it out, and because we're walking in truth, we'll walk in love, and the two will be working together. This should be our calling card as a believer. You know, I read that, and I I think surely John was remembering the upper room teaching of Jesus when Jesus said that Love was the primary way the world would recognize his disciples. He said, by this will all men know you're my disciples. By what? That, that you have love one for another. Also think about the context there. Uh, it, it's in that same window of time that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And, and you say, well, that's really something. But you've got to remember, he also washed the feet of Judas, knowing he was going to betray him. See, it's easy to be a nice person and to maintain the trappings of spirituality, but loving, unlovable people, loving people who stab us in the back, that takes supernatural help. We need His help. No wonder when the church does what it's supposed to do, when it acts like it's supposed to act, when it's filled with the love of God, when it speaks the truth in love, in true God-like, Christ-like love, when it happens and we act that way, it is no wonder that people sit up and take notice. I forget who said it, but someone once said, there's nothing like the church when the church is working right. Trust the Lord in your life personally for the capacity... To love all of those that he has put in your life. Realizing that even those ones that are, I call them EGRs, extra grace required. Anybody have some EGRs in your life? Some of you, if you didn't raise your hand, you may be an EGR. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure what the situation is, but, but, uh, but, uh, you know, Those people are placed in my life as well. God has put me there to, to serve as a witness, to, to shine my light for them. But also, they're there because He's gonna use them to keep shaping me. They're gonna chisel, He's gonna use them to chisel away, chisel, chisel away at me. And here's what I know. I can't speak for a rock, but for me personally, it hurts when I get chiseled. It's not a fun experience. So we need His help. Ask God to live in you. Ask God to love through you. Because the Bible says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you do that, when that takes place, not that you'll be perfect, but when when you're moving forward in that, then you'll be walking in love and you'll be walking in the truth. That's the goal. That's what John wants for us. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what we want for us as well. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we, we thank you for truth and we thank you for love. And we thank you that both of those are embodied perfectly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one whom we serve, the one who is the, our Savior, the one uh, who, who, whom we want to model our lives after. And Lord, we thank you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, because we know we could never measure up to the truth and love of Jesus on our own. It does not come naturally to us. But God, I pray that we would take what we've learned and that we will love one another. We will be those children that get along well and we, we play well together. And in so doing that the neighborhood, the world around us sees what, that there's something different going on here There's something different in this family of God, and that must reflect on the nature of our Father. And I pray, God, that as we live this way, as you live in us, as you empower us, that you would let your light shine so brightly that other people would want the truth and the love that we have found. Use us, God, to touch the lives of people around us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.